Good day. From BNY Mellon Asset Management Canada, my name is Tim Wilcox. This podcast is for informational purposes, intended for use by financial professionals only, and may not be redistributed without authorization. The commentary, including references to the investment holdings and market outlook, are provided as of today, May 13, 2022, and are subject to change and are not to be construed as investment advice, recommendations, or solicitations. Joining me from Edinburgh is Murdo McLean, Client Investment Manager with our affiliate Walter Scott. Welcome, Murdo. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, thank you indeed, Murdo, for joining me again. A tremendous amount's happened in the past few months since we last spoke, both geopolitically and with respect to markets. Over the next 10 to 15 minutes, let's try to dig into some of the broader issues as well as some specific portfolio questions. Firstly, as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, has globalization fundamentally changed? I mean, no question about it. 2022 so far feels like the end of what has been a very long bull market in equities. We've been saying for quite some time that at some point a pullback was likely. What was less clear was the trigger for this and the timing. I think that whilst the first three months have been turbulent, however, it's still pretty unclear how this all plays out. Much has been made of the impact on the global economy from the conflict in Ukraine. Already stretched supply chains have come under real pressure, uh, and some suggest that this has laid bare the weakness in the global nature of those supply chains. A return to more localised manufacturing is therefore likely, they suggest. I'm not so sure about this narrative, and it clearly does not appear to be what our companies are telling us. In fact, there is little evidence to support the view that we're entering a period of deglobalization. I mean, if this trend were to be gaining traction, then we would expect trade balances to be shrinking. However, this is not the case. The US trade deficit has continued to increase, and US imports grew 10% in March this year to $351 billion, a record for the world's largest economy. Indeed, US exports also rose strongly, reaching a record $242 billion. Another metric you might look at if the world was deserting China, would be foreign direct investment or FDI. In fact, in 2020, China became the largest recipient of FDI, overtaking the US globally. Whilst there's certainly tension between the United States and China, companies themselves make decisions around their supply chain infrastructure based upon what makes economic sense to their bottom line. A complete overhaul of an established network would take years and significant resources to do, and neither seem particularly attractive for many companies around the world. Taiwan Semiconductor's new factory in Arizona, for example, won't even be operational until 2024. So companies may, however, be taking stock of how the landscape is playing out. What is likely is that they adopt a China plus one approach, whereby they're spreading their risk by having more manufacturing capacity outside of China, while retaining existing exposure to China. Southeast Asian countries, for example, have also seen significant investment in this regard. But I think what we can say for sure is that Russia's position in a connected world now is seriously under threat. The country could very well find itself isolated from all but a small number of countries now. Thanks, Murdo. The next question is on inflation. This is still the number one concern for most advisors. Explain why many of our companies have the business models to withstand and potentially prosper in an inflationary environment. Yeah, I think this concern is certainly warranted. I mean, the threat of systemic inflation and the related rise in interest rates has seen valuations of stocks come down significantly so far this year. 
The market simply doesn't like uncertainty. And I think a key characteristic about all of our companies is resilience. They face similar pressures to many other businesses. No company is ever entirely immune. However, they're typically less impacted than your average business. They're aided by having high and sustainable margins, strong cash flow generation, experienced management teams, but also, as you allude to, Tim, they also have business models that have been honed over many business cycles. And I, I can give you a couple of examples, but there are many across the portfolio. The first example would be the payment processor, automatic data processing, or ADP. We've owned this company for a long time. It offers payroll, HR, and outsourcing solutions to over 900,000 employees around the world. The business has very high client retention levels. It is an asset-light business and a very strong balance sheet. So as inflation rises and interest rates follow, the business actually stands to benefit by the float that it carries for its customers ahead of payday. Higher interest rates mean higher returns on that float, and management indicate that that is poised to become a material tailwind to earnings. Another example would be Waters, US healthcare business, but it's in fact the world's leading molecular detection and measurement company. What we believe makes this company stand out from its peers is that almost half its sales come from consumables that are used with the instruments, associated services and software solutions. Without these, these instruments are virtually useless. And at the same time, they're recurring in nature and high margin. The company's first quarter results recently demonstrated this resilience with profits rising faster than sales. The company was actually able to buck the input cost pressure by launching new products and raising prices for these. And management point to further price increases in the coming months. In our opinion, only companies with products that its customers cannot do without really have this kind of power. Well, thanks, Murdo. Let's change direction a bit. So our international strategy has a meaningful weight in Japanese companies. Why did our high-quality Japanese stocks lag the broader Japanese index? Yeah, I mean, as you know, Tim, we, we've invested in Japanese companies for almost 40 years, and, and some of the holdings today have, in fact, been in portfolios for a very long time. I think what we've seen over the past few months is an aggressive selling down of high-quality businesses in favor of what I might refer to as lower-quality cyclical companies due to the relative valuation gap between both. And when it comes to Japan, as a result of decades of economic stagnation, much of the Japanese market has become perennially out of favor. Almost half of that market is considered to be value or even deep value. In other words, companies that seldom trade at a premium to the market. As you know, we don't invest in such businesses. And when it comes to Japan, to own what we perceive to be very high quality businesses, you sometimes have to pay a larger price premium than you'd pay in other countries for comparable qualities. And this is in fact a strategy that's definitely worked over the years for us. However, in recent months, quality businesses have been sold off everywhere, but particularly in Japan. Apart from this dynamic, a couple of other factors are worth touching on, I think. With the rapid depreciation of the yen, many might have expected Japanese companies to thrive. However, the situation is a bit more nuanced. By virtue of the success of Japanese corporates over the years in diversifying their business outside of Japan, the actual impact of a weaker yen is diminished versus what it used to be. Almost a quarter of all Japanese production is now carried out overseas, and that figure was as low as 15% 20 years ago. As such, the traditional trade of buying the market when the yen weakens because it benefits swathes of Japanese exporters may be weakening. 
At the same time, the rapid rise in fuel and commodity prices against a falling yen is also exerting real pressure on the Japanese, both manufacturers and households. And this can lead to margin pressure on domestic-focused businesses, as well as potentially offsetting some of the translational benefits of a weak yen for exporters. And unlike overseas companies, the ability for domestic Japanese companies to increase domestic prices is not a given. They'll have strong concerns over the customer response. So the pace of the Japanese yen weakening and its impact should also not be underestimated. Investors and companies alike are likely to have lost confidence in earnings estimates and business projections made at a time when the outlook for the yen was far more benign than it is now. And this can lead to selling pressure from investors who've not invested the time in understanding why they own what they own. By example, Daikin saw a fair bit of weakness during the first quarter of the year. The world's largest and most energy efficient manufacturer of air conditioning has a very successful global business. And the strengths of that really shone through in the recent results. Despite the weak backdrop globally due to supply chain disruptions, Daikin delivered 25% revenue growth and expanded its operating margin when compared to last year. The key strengths were on show with the business growing its Japanese business and taking market share against the overall market, which saw volume declines. And at the same time, its European, American and Chinese business all posted revenue increases of 30% or more when compared to 2021, demonstrating the strong demand and resilience of this company. Thanks, Murdo. Let's turn now to healthcare. I was a bit surprised by the pullback in our healthcare holdings. Why did this happen? And what are our thoughts on the prospects of healthcare going forward? Yes, although healthcare has a defensive image, this sort of reflects a view that healthcare equals pharmaceuticals. In reality, in our portfolios, we've bought these companies for the growth that we believe they're capable of delivering. They do possess the defensive characteristics that define all Walter Scott stocks, market leading position, robust margins, strong balance sheets, etc., but they also represent some of the most attractive long-term growth stories that we can find. We believe because they have these characteristics, they've been among the strongest performance contributors in recent years. And this has led to some of them trading on valuations not too dissimilar to technology businesses. And as ever, we maintain a watchful eye on valuations that become detached from reality. But in the main, we do not believe we hold such stocks. The market has punished the strong in favor of the weak. And this, we believe, is nothing more than profit-taking with the fundamentals that underpin those companies in robust health. If you consider Edwards Life Sciences, for example, their first quarter results struck a positive tone with their signature TAVR, or trans-aortic valve replacement procedures, growing 14% versus last year, and with its operating margin rising 150 basis points to a very healthy 33%. This is a company that's pioneered the minimally invasive procedure for treating a deadly disease called aortic stenosis. They are the leading player selling into an addressable market where 50% of those people with the disease are still undiagnosed. We believe the future looks very bright indeed for Edwards. Another example, the Danish diabetes giant Novo Nordisk also announced stellar results with sales and profits rising 18% year over year. Its brand new anti-obesity drug, Wegovoy, reached 200 million in sales in record time. Once again, the company saw its operating margin expand to 46% in the quarter. These businesses are operating in growth markets with leading products, and the team at Walter Scott remains firmly behind them, Tim. Great. Thanks, Murdo. The last question for today's session is on energy. It was the only positive sector in Q1. 
We are void energy names in the global strategy and only hold one name in the international. Most Canadian investors own domestic energy names, and given the current landscape, is Walter Scott reconsidering its positioning in the sector? I mean, after years of lackluster commodity prices, the energy sector had become very unloved. And as a consequence, it was one of the natural homes for investors to flock to in search of value. The years of deteriorating fundamentals in the sector led us to exit most of our energy positions, leaving us with just one holding in the French company Total Energies. Where we struggle with companies in this sector, as well as in the commodity sector, is the lack of pricing power that they possess. Essentially, they are price takers. Now, this can work in their favour, such as the case right now, but equally it can lead to very lengthy periods of poor financial returns. This inconsistency has become somewhat of a feature of the sector, and as such we've found more attractive ideas elsewhere in recent years. So the current upswing in fortunes reflects both the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but also a chronic lack of investing in new production, and the challenges of moving away from a carbon-based economy. That said, the transition will have to happen. It's just very unclear how many companies will actually navigate this very well. In terms of performance, this absence in the portfolio has indeed created a bit of a performance headwind. But the longer term picture for energy companies is in our minds at least still challenged and the visibility is poor. The team at Walter Scott continues to look for opportunities across all sectors. Businesses that look attractive on a long term basis will continue to be considered. But in order for energy to feature, I think some of the challenges I've previously mentioned will need to be overcome. Well, thank you very much for today's discussion, Murdo. In closing, on behalf of Walter Scott and BNY Mellon Asset Management Canada, thank you for listening. Should you wish further information, please send me Tim Wilcox or my colleague Howard Gross a note. All investments involve risk, including the possible loss of principal. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable but not guaranteed. Thank you for listening. <music>